0: Bodhijitta is a word, it's actually two words in Pali and Sanskrit. It means the heart-mind of awakening. Bodhi means awakening, enlightenment, wisdom. And jitta means heart or mind. And in many Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same. So we want to really think of it as one. On the relative level, Bodhijitta means compassion. It's the realization that we're not practicing just for ourselves alone. But in fact we can practice for ourselves alone. It's the motivation or the aspiration that our practice be for the benefit, for the welfare, for the awakening Of all beings and so at the beginning of a sitting if you feel so inclined if you feel connected to this aspiration this expression of compassion the beginning of a sitting we can say in our minds may this practice Or may I quickly attain liberation for the benefit of all, for the awakening of all. So it sets a context for our efforts outside of our own self-centeredness. May I quickly be liberated for the welfare and benefit of all. At the end of a sitting, we might dedicate the merit of the sitting May the merit of my practice be for the welfare and benefit and awakening of all beings. So this is the aspect of relative bodhijitta of compassion. On the absolute level, bodhijitta means the empty nature of the mind itself. One Tibetan teacher summed these two up, he said, when both relative and absolute bodhijitta are present, that is compassion and emptiness, enlightenment is unavoidable. So I think it's worth considering you know, what these mean. A transforming part of our practice, transforming time in our practice, is when we realize that these two are not separate, but actually expressions of each other. That compassion is the expression of emptiness, not something apart from it. There's one teaching that beautifully expresses this union of the relative and absolute nature of bodhicitta. The teaching by one of the great Tibetan yogis. His name was Shabkar. He said, The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal intrinsically empty naturally radiant ceaselessly responsive what does intrinsically empty mean for many people it might not sound all that appealing now what is emptiness and people might imagine some kind of gray vacuity you know like a vacuum or nothingness or blankness That's what it may mean in English. That's not the Buddhist usage of the term. Of course, it's a very uh, profound term, and much has been written about the meaning of emptiness. I think it can perhaps be most simply understood as the absence of self-centeredness. Usually... When we think of self-centeredness, we think of that as being a psychological problem. You know, we might characterize somebody's personality as, oh, they're really self-centered. And so we might address that problem, we saw it in ourselves maybe by 25 years of therapy, treating it as a psychological dilemma But it really has a much more fundamental meaning. And that is whether we are creating or holding on to a sense of self to be at the center of our lives, a reference point. Are we creating or holding a sense of self to be the reference point for all our experience? For all we think and sense and feel the idea or the felt sense that there's someone behind experience to whom it's happening. My body, my thoughts, my feelings, my things. That addition, that creation of the concept of self, of I, as the reference point for our lives. Are we living in this gravitational field of a self-center which we often do when we circle around this self-center with our hopes and our fears and our plans and our worries our work and our relationships it's where our whole lives seem to revolve around desire for new experience as if somehow this self will be satisfied by some new hit of experience. After six weeks or three months, do you still have that illusion? (laughs) That some new sight or sound or smell or taste or sensation in the body or thought or emotion is somehow going to be fulfilling? I mean, the great beauty of the practice of awareness, of paying attention, is that we see the futility of that. And yet so often in our lives when we don't pay attention, we are in this gravitational field of a self-center, trying to gratify it, to defend it, to protect it, to fulfill it. But through mindfulness, through a careful attention, through an investigation into our own minds, into the nature of our experience, it's as if we begin to leave this familiar orbit. And we're drawn increasingly into the gravitational field of the Dharma. We begin to get glimpses of the zero center, as opposed to the self-center. And the zero-center, we could say the understanding of emptiness, becomes the new gravitational force in our lives. We get pulled more and more to the realization of that, to the experience of that. A great Sufi mystic and poet, uh, Rumi, expressed this so well, he said, Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. And this is our practice, really. It's to open to or understand the nowhere that we come from, even as we live here in all our relationships and all our experiences. So we can experience or begin to experience glimpse this zero center, this emptiness of self in different ways. Sometimes we're reminded by our teachers, you know, and it can be sometimes just in their presence. We're really in the presence of a great being, you know, who really embodies this realization of emptiness of self. It's tremendously inspiring. It's almost like we get a contact hit of emptiness and we see that or feel or intuit from being in their presence yet this is possible this is really reflective of my own nature sometimes it's through their words one story of a Canadian woman who was a student of Kalu Rinpoche Quite a few years ago, in the in the sixties, the sixties used to seem so recent. <laughs> the sixties, you know. way back then. <laughs> and she had been in India, you know, studying with him. Then she went back to one of the interior provinces of Canada, Saskatchewan or Alberta, where there was no Dharma, you know, seen around her. Especially at that time. So she was really struggling to keep her practice going. And she wrote him a letter saying, you know, detailing the, her situation and ending the letter saying, the only thing that keeps me going is holding you in my heart. So then she wrote this, and you know, it took several weeks to get there and then several weeks for a reply to come. Finally, a note comes back from uh, Rinpoche. One line, the nature of the heart is emptiness. (coughs) (laughs) But then, some days later, another note came. (laughs) Where he said, when you practice the holy dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away and the sun, the shining sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. And so it was just that teaching of taking away a place of grasping, of clinging, of holding, of something that obscured the understanding of emptiness of self, and then the pointing out that in that, there is great joy. So we can begin to get a sense, you know, through the words or the presence of a teacher. Of course, we also experience, and perhaps more deeply and more profoundly, the absence of self, that zero-center, through our own practice, what we've been doing here all of these weeks. You know, and the Buddha expressed it so explicitly and carefully, was his basic instruction to us, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Period. And that's our practice, moment to moment. Whatever it is that's arising, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. I want to read something that I read the first week of the retreat. <clears throat> um, Because it's an expression of that sense of emptiness from a whole different tradition. But it really captures, it captures the quality of it. Mother Teresa was asked by an interviewer what she says to God when she prays. I don't say anything. She replied, I just listen. So the interviewer asked her what God says to her. He doesn't say anything, said Mother Teresa. He just listens. Or she. or." <laughs> and she added, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. And I love that because it's just the image of listening, listening to listening. Mm. And it's just... It's almost like it all cancels each other out, and there's just emptiness of self, emptiness of I. When we look for this empty essence, this zero center, this empty aspect of the nature of mind, there's nothing to find. And here we enter into the great mystery. We look to see where is this mind, where is this self. And there's nothing to find, there's nothing to see. It's invisible. It's empty, it's unobstructed. There's a mathematician at, I think he was at Harvard, his name was Robert Kaplan. And he recently wrote a book called It's a book about the history of the number zero. And it's called The Nothing That Is. And I love the title. You know, just The Nothing That Is. And I didn't get too far in the book, but the first line of it <laughs> <laughs> was really all I had to read. said, look at zero and you see nothing, look through it and you see the world. And I just captured that experience of the zero empty nature of the mind. Look for it, you see nothing, look through it and you see the world. But the mind is not only intrinsically empty, it's also naturally radiant. As we deepen in our understanding of the nature of our own minds, we begin to connect with greater and greater clarity with the innate wakefulness or the aware nature of the mind. It's not simply empty, it's also innately wakeful or aware. <clears throat> so I'd like to just explain this aspect a little bit. Naturally radiant. Radiant here means wakeful or aware. The fundamental element of what we call consciousness of what we call mind, when we refer to mind, the fundamental element of that fundamental quality is consciousness, is the knowing faculty. It's this factor of cognizing the object, of knowing the object, whether it's a sight, or sound, or smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought. Now knowing, this knowing quality of the mind, Here does not refer to knowledge, to acquired knowledge. That's not what we mean by knowing. It's not what we learn through study. Knowing here is the immediate, direct knowing of an object as it's arising. For example, a sound appears, and it's immediately known, it's spontaneously known. And that knowing is different from the thinking which might follow. It's a bird, it's a truck, it's the wind. That's all thought which comes after. Just in the first moment, there's the simple knowing. That's consciousness, that's what we call mind. It's arising spontaneously, moment after moment. We don't have to do anything for consciousness right on time (laughs) sounds just arose they're known so consciousness is arising in every moment spontaneously now in each of these moments delusion can be present or not present there's some good news which is that delusion is not inherent to the mind. Delusion is not inherent. It's not an intrinsic part of consciousness or knowing. The bad news is that it's a pretty well-developed habit and so it seems to arise quite often. And we see it expressed in those moments when delusion arises. We see it expressed in those moments when the mind is caught, it's fixated, it's identified with some arising experience. How many times in a day, and this is one of the gifts of meditation, we begin to see the force and the power and the strength of this habit of delusion, now, how many times in a day are we simply caught up in some thought or some feeling or some judgment or some reaction? How often do we get lost in our thoughts of past and future? Just today, you know, have you had any thoughts about the first thing you're going to do when the retreat is over? <laughs> You know, maybe meeting with your partner or having a cappuccino or something. You know, where we have some fantasy, we. thoughts arising in the mind, if delusion is present, we are caught in it. We're lost in that world. We're not aware in that moment that it's just a thought. Sometimes I have the image of each experience. Arising it's like each each arising experience seems to come with a hook. And I think of the deluded mind as just it just keeps biting, you know, on the hooks and then getting caught. And we bite a lot. It's helpful I think to notice that these moments of contraction, of biting, of getting lost, of delusion, are really moments of suffering. And so it's helpful to notice that, to see that it is a contraction of our minds. I think we're very familiar both with the descriptions and the experience of all these aspects of delusion. You know, the Buddha had so many lists just around this. The hindrances, the floods, the taints, the bonds, the fetters, the defilements... You know, it's all of those forces in the mind where we get caught, in all the ways we get caught. But I think it's also helpful to learn to recognize, to learn to understand the wisdom mind, to recognize those moments when delusion is not present, so we become familiar with the nature of awareness the nature of this wisdom mind. The nature of consciousness in our own experience, not theoretically, what is the mind like? What is consciousness like when it is unclouded by ignorance? And we have many of those moments as well. Because although delusion is a strong habit and we get lost again and again, as mindfulness gets stronger, we realize that it is not intrinsic to consciousness and that there are many, many moments in the day when we are resting in awareness, resting in the mind free of delusion. So the words we can use to describe that kind of consciousness, those moments of consciousness where there is not ignorance present, when there is not delusion present, Consciousness is the knowing faculty arising every moment. In those moments that it's free of delusion, we could call those moments awareness or innate wakefulness. This is what is meant by the mind being naturally radiant. It's the understanding that although the clouds of delusion come often, they are visitors to the mind. And that the natural state of mind, free of delusion, is awareness, is wakefulness. So there's an image which describes this movement between delusion and wakefulness, between delusion and awareness, and I think it's a helpful image to understand this movement in our own experience. That's the image of ice and water. Now, what's the nature of ice? It's solid, it's hard, it's frozen. So what ice means, it's, it's our experience of the mind whenever it's contracted in an identification, an attachment, a clinging to experience. When we become fixated and the mind is holding to to a particular experience or even identified with the knowing itself. And this is the most subtle, we could call this slush. It's the most subtle kind of Attachment, even as we may be seeing all the changing objects, but we can still be identified with the knowing. That's a contraction, that's a fixation. Ice is when we are lost in the movies of our minds. You know, it's like going to a movie theater and getting totally absorbed in the story and we feel happy, or sad, or depressed, or excited, or terrified, or whatever it is that's going on. We're lost in the belief that the story on the screen is somehow real, and we are caught by it. Well, sometimes, you know, go to the theater, and it's really interesting, because it's hard to remember when we're totally engaged in the story but if we happen to remember and we just glance up and we see the beam of light being projected on the screen and we realize that despite all of our emotional engagement and involvement and nothing is really going on I think one story, which I think I mentioned during the retreat, but it it fits in here well. So I'll just repeat it because it's one of the most inspiring stories to me about this understanding. Uh, You know, it's when uh, His Holiness, the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa died. He was very sick. His body was riddled with cancer. Students very upset, you know, and concerned and... And at one point he turned to the students and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. That's quite a way to hold life and death. To see that the ice, the solidification, the contraction, the identification is really a function of delusion. That on another level, nothing happens. So we want to watch how often during the day (coughs) our mind turns to ice. How many times during the day is there that moment of contraction, of fixation? Not with judgment and not with aversion, which just becomes more solidification, just through seeing, seeing that movement. So water represents the nature of awareness the nature, or the quality of this innate wakefulness. What is called the radiance of mind, naturally radiant. And it refers to all of those moments of consciousness which are free of delusion, in which there is not grasping, not attachment, not fixation. Water is unfrozen, not solid, it's flowing. It's like that moment, you know, which I'm sure you've experienced many times, when you come out from the movie theater, having been totally involved, and then there's kind of that moment of a reality shift. You now it's like, Psharp. and there really is that feeling of the mind getting bigger and not lost anymore in the story, realizing that yeah, that was just a movie. Well. we have endless opportunities as you sit and walk through the day to experience the quality of the mind as it comes out from being lost in a thought, lost in a mind drama, lost in some emotion, to really see and focus and recognize the moment of ice becoming water. So we can recognize this quality then of awareness. This is a great discovery. It's really a profound understanding. So don't underestimate the value of paying attention to this. Because the great discovery here is that water, the nature of awareness, this innate wakefulness, is nothing other than melted ice. And so awareness is not some far-off state, and if we practice really hard, we'll get a glimpse of it. Awareness, wakefulness is the nature of the unfrozen mind. And so in every moment that we come out from being lost, when we let go of the clinging, if we recognize that moment and pay attention to the quality of the mind, we will experience for ourselves this water-like nature, open-like nature of awareness. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, empty of self, zero center, naturally radiant, free of delusion, there is innate wakefulness, innate awareness, ceaselessly responsive, in the state of openness, In the state of awareness, when the mind is like water in that way, there is a great and spontaneous responsiveness <clears throat> to situations. <clears throat> in the image I have, it's like water flowing down a mountainside, responding completely appropriately to the particular topography, finding the shortest way down the mountain. When we come from our zero-center, rather than a self-center, when we recognize that awareness is the mind in a moment, is consciousness free of delusion, we discover something quite amazing, and that is that the natural responsiveness of this open, aware mind is love and compassion. That love and compassion are the expression of emptiness, emptiness of self. We can experience this on different levels. The spontaneous responsiveness to situations. At first, we might experience it on the level of empathy. We just begin to feel a natural empathy towards the suffering or the difficulty or the pain of others. And this happens when we take a moment and we actually stop and feel what's going on in another person, when we're not just rushing by with our lives. Now, how many times, not here of course, but in the world outside, meet somebody and say, How are you? <laughs> and they have two words out of their mouth and <laughs> we're already gone. That we're not really there for that question. We're not really asking. What would it take you know, to be so present and empty of self, not fixated on our plan or what we have to do or that feeling of rushing, but actually present in that place of awareness so that we can feel what somebody else is feeling? one point, I went, I went to visit uh, Karmapa in Rumtek. Uh, and it was, it was one of the most amazing experiences. Uh, I didn't know he was there, I was just visiting the monastery and he happened to be in residence and they said, would you like to see him? And I said, sure. Uh, and the whole thing... <laughs> Part of it was a little embarrassing because I was not at all familiar with Tibetan uh, form, you know so I go in and and I kind of do my Burmese bows, you know, which are very different than the Tibetan bows. so he's just kind of sitting there watching me uh, be awkward, but then, as I was sitting there, the feeling I got from him was if at that that at that moment, I was the most important being in the universe. That was the feeling. So complete, so total was his attention. So empty, and out of the emptiness, so compassionate. It was, it was a remarkable experience to see what's possible when we take the self out of the way, when we're not coming from a self-center, but from the zero-center because then we actually can let someone in. Most of you probably are aware of uh, Ram Das's guru, Neem Karoli Baba. Oh, he was a great Hindu, Hindu saint. There was a temple, he had a temple in Brindaban in India, And at the entrance to the temple, there were just some words of his teachings. And there was one line which, it was so startling to me, because it just struck something so deep. This one line that was in this text was, I am as close to you as you are to me. And it was just that sense of what limits closeness with somebody who's empty is nothing of them. It's our own fears, or wants, or desires, or, and that he was making the statement, I'm as close to you as you are to me. Come all the way in. That can only come from a place of emptiness. Compassion is something more than empathy. Compassion, which is really the complete expression of this spontaneous responsiveness, compassion is not simply a feeling for others, a feeling for the difficulty of others, but compassion contains within it the very strong motivation to act. So it's not just a feeling. And it's perhaps best expressed by the question, in any situation, how can I help? What can I do in this situation to alleviate suffering? Thich Han expressed it so well. He said, compassion is a verb. Mm. It's not just a feeling. Compassion has within it the motivation to do something, to act in the world. So what brings forth this feeling of compassion? As we realize more and more the empty nature, the selfless center, that allows us to come close to suffering. And it's closeness to suffering which is the cause for compassion to arise. An interesting experiment, both here and when you leave, but even in these next days, pay attention to what the mind habitually does when it comes close to suffering. Does it try to push it away? Is it uneasy? Is it open? Does it let it in? Can we be with it? Do we not want to be with it? Look at this carefully in the context of understanding that compassion arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. And so a great deal of our practice is, as you know, is that openness. Okay, can I be with this? This is okay, can I feel it? There's one one story which is a classic Illustration of our tendency to deny the suffering that's there. It's told to me by a friend of mine. A story about his father and grandfather. His grandfather and father were traveling in a car on December 7th, 1941. which was Pearl Harbor Day. Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So his grandfather and father in the car listening to the radio. The announcer comes on. You know, the Japanese have just bombed Pearl Harbor, beginning of World War II. And the first thing the grandfather says to the father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> well, World War II is a big one to keep out. okay don't tell her (laughs) well we all do that to a greater or not greater probably to a lesser extent because that's a pretty big one but really to look in our experience are we denying are we keeping away Or can we be both in ourselves, our own suffering, and that of others? Can we let it in? This is the basis for compassion. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. That's the nature of the wisdom mind of awareness, ceaselessly responsive to situations. And so, compassion is an active engagement with the world, an active engagement with the suffering in the world. It's this spontaneous responsiveness to the needs of beings, in whatever way is possible for us, in whatever way is appropriate. Now, compassion here is not a stance. It's not an ego projection. It's not that sense, oh, I'm being compassionate to you. Compassion is the activity of awareness. Compassion is the expression of emptiness. Sometimes it's in very simple ways. no, No big splash. Maybe it's just that natural responsiveness of being kinder or more generous, more attentive to the people around us. Maybe it's expressed in greater forgiveness of people who may have harmed us in some way. Sometimes this compassion expresses itself in acts of tremendous courage. Last year sometime I so watching this video of uh, documentary of Martin, the life of Martin Luther King, and of course, you know, I had lived through a lot of that time. But seeing the video and seeing a lot of the footage, you know, of there were particular just scenes of his work in Chicago and then in Memphis, you know, surrounded by so much hatred and violence and he was not denying it. And he wasn't pretending that it wasn't there. And there was such an incredible sense of loving, compassionate response, strong response. And it was incredibly re- inspiring to see the possibility even in those very dramatic situations in intense situations in violent situations that it's possible to hold that space You know, when you think of Gandhi in India or Mandela in South Africa, and there are many, you know, many, many examples, both famous and not famous. And to see and to understand in ourselves, or to get out of the way, to take the self out of the way, so we're not held back by fear. And we allow that love and compassion to be the expression of awareness, the activity of awareness. There's no particular prescription for what we should do, for how the compassion should look in the world. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. We each respond out of our own interests, our own talents, our own karmic tendencies. It might be relating in a different way to the people closest to us. It might be involved in some direct political social action. It might be living in seclusion for the rest of your life with the motivation of bodhicitta. You know, when you think of all the Jataka stories, the tales of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, before he became awakened, all, all the tales of the many lifetimes, he did so many different things. Sometimes he was so actively engaged in the world, developing different parames. In so many lifetimes he was just a hermit, you know, in a recluse in the woods, living a solitary life. And if we took any one slice, you know, just this lifetime, and saw, oh yeah, he's really disengaged from the world. doesn't look like compassion to me. It misses the point that this is a very long journey. This is a vast journey. And then at different times, just as the Bodhisattva, we will be cultivating different aspects. And it might be very active and it might be a life in seclusion. If we hold it all in the aspiration, with the aspiration of Bodhijitta, But yes, whatever particular course I take in this life, may it be for the welfare and benefit of all. Then it's allowing that flow of compassion to happen. The field of compassion is limitless because it is the field of suffering beings. So it can take many forms, it can take any form. So here is where compassion and emptiness, relative and absolute bodhicitta merge. They are expressions of each other. The more compassion is developed, the easier we tune in to the selfless nature. And the more we understand the selfless nature the more naturally and spontaneously the compassion flows. Seeing these two as an expression of each other, compassion and emptiness, not being two things but one, illuminated for me in a very helpful way the bodhisattva vow And people in different traditions, even the meaning of the vow can mean many different things. But the point I want to make here, the Bodhisattva vow, in one formulation, is beings are numberless, I vow to save them. When I first came across that, it sounded like a really nice idea. But... incredibly daunting even impossible it just when i was holding that notion letting it rest on the shoulders of a self it seemed completely impossible you now how could i ever possibly undertake that kind of vow Much later, years later, as I began to understand that the power, the limitless power of compassion comes out of the understanding of emptiness. It's not resting on self at all. Compassion is the natural responsiveness of the wisdom mind, of awareness itself. There's no one doing anything. There's no one saving anybody else. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Then that aspiration took on a whole different meaning. It's just the flowing of the dharma. I'd like to close with this one teaching from one of the great Tibetan masters, Kensi Rinpoche, from the last century. Uh, And he just brings all of this together. When you recognize the empty selfless nature of phenomena The energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this is our practice, recognizing the empty, selfless nature of phenomena. And as we do that, in our experience, through mindful attention, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Sit for a couple of minutes. In the mind, free of grasping, free of clinging, everything is known. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive.